Cerebral is an online mental health service that offers prescription medication, counseling, and therapy for anxiety, depression, ADHD, insomnia, and more. Cerebral is one of the few services that provides prescription medication online through a licensed provider and ships medication straight to your door. You can schedule sessions based on what's most convenient for you, and you don't have to wait weeks to be seen. And BuzzFeed Daily listeners can receive 65% off your first month of medication management and care counseling at Cerebral.com slash BuzzFeed. Go to Cerebral.com slash BuzzFeed for 65% off your first month. Join Cerebral today on their mission to make quality mental health care accessible and affordable for all. Peacock Streaming. The biggest sports and live events on the planet. From Super Bowl 56. What a game this is. To complete coverage of the Winter Olympics. Streaming every event, every day. Yes! It's all the unprecedented. United States wins gold. Unstoppable. Sensational. Unbelievable. Sports to love. Sign up now at PeacockTV.com. Hello, I'm Minnie Driver. And on my podcast, Mini Questions, I ask trailblazers across different disciplines the same seven questions. Questions about the inflection points in their life, what they like least about themselves, and what relationship has defined love for them. This season, I'm coming back with new trailblazers like Blondie vocalist Debbie Harry, journalist and television host Jeremy Clarkson, editor-in-chief of InStar magazine Laura Brown, and creative juggernaut Goldie. Join me as we continue this exploration on season two of Mini Questions, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. If the number of friends in your life dropped during the pandemic, you're not alone. Billy Porter has revealed he's HIV positive. And we're talking about how some Instagram accounts are making therapy less white with Estelle Tay. It's May 19th, 2021. friends. I'm Casey Rackham. And I'm Shyla Watson. Welcome to BuzzFeed Daily. Okay, Shyla, I know we both haven't seen Dear Evan Hansen on Broadway. I've watched many clips on YouTube.com, but I haven't. That's more than me. <laughs> but I haven't seen the show. Okay, but the thing that is making my brain hurt right now is that they're turning this into a movie, right? But Ben Platt has definitely aged out of being yeah, a teen. Not- He's aged out, Shyla. He's 27. And so they've done they've done some special CGI makeup effects happening. And I'm like, hmm, hmm. It's it's not cute. Um, and it, it's awkward, but at the same time, it kind of hurts my feelings because we're the same age. And uh, I don't like the idea that I've aged out of my teen years. So we're just That's gonna, like fully we're offended move past you, and that. I love it because sometimes, Shelly, you have to face the truth. Okay, you have to face it head Never. on. Okay, so we're going to start off with the fact that during the pandemic, many people, mostly women, grew apart from their friends. Thank gosh I didn't. But anyway, I thought um, you were about to say, thank gosh I did. I was like, Shyla. (laughs) Okay, continue, continue, Shyla. I was just my heart stopped for a moment. (laughs) Oh, gosh. According to clinical therapist Caroline Given, who spoke with Bustle, the pandemic sped up the processes by which people would move away from friendships by months or even years. Part of that is the result of time to reflect on friendships that don't serve people's needs anymore. And the thing that's replaced a lot of those IRL relationships, 
parasocial ones, which is when we form imaginary bonds with the celebrities and influencers on our screens. It turns out that those friendships are rewarding because they don't require the maintenance that goes into seeing people in person. Oh, that's very oh, real. <laughs> I was just going to be like, oh, I don't like, I don't know if I've done that, but I don't, wait, Shyla, have you? What imaginary friendships do you, you know, have with celebrities? I mean, okay, so I'm definitely like imaginary friendships with people in books. So that's uh, slightly different. Okay, yeah, no, that's fair. I, I get it. I think that's the same gist of what they're saying. Yeah, and I mean, like, it's not that I don't have IRL friends, but like, I think also a lot of my friends don't live in LA. So like, I've had to communicate like, you know, with distance. But in terms of having a relationship where you don't have to put so much work into it in person and like you know it can sort of just like be is very appealing to me (laughs) yeah I mean I I totally agree though in terms of like reflection it's definitely made me reflect not always in a bad way but just kind of like you know I feel like you had to whereas you could have like lots of friends now you had to limit whose friendships you're going to nurture by texting and facetiming all the time whereas it used to be like you keep your friendships going by seeing them at work or going to a bar with them on Fridays that doesn't happen anymore and But, you know, so, but it just like, honestly, I think I look at it in a positive way of just seeing like what my strongest friendships are. You know, I always think about um, in the Mindy project when she says um, friendship is a tear. And I feel like that's very real. And it's like, I still have all of my like A tier friends, but then everyone else has fallen off. And like, it takes so much effort to like reach back out. But I'm hoping that now that things are opening up again, maybe I'll reconnect with some people. Do you know what I do instead of having a tear? And I don't even know one what a wedding of mine would look like or if I'd have bridesmaids but I do it by bridesmaids I I like that (laughs) system actually (laughs) okay so moving on Billy Porter revealed in an interview with the Hollywood Reporter that he's been living with HIV for years the post star noted that he was diagnosed in 2007 and that part of the reason he hadn't told anyone about it until now was due to an incredible amount of shame and the fear that it would stop his career from blossoming During the pandemic, Porter says he spent the time reflecting and said, quote, as a black person, particularly a black man on this planet, you have to be perfect or you will get killed. But look at me. Yes, I am the statistic, but I've transcended it. This is what HIV positive looks like now. I'm so much more than that diagnosis. And if you don't want to work with me because of my status, you're not worthy of me. It's that last line for me, you're not worthy of me, that is just so powerful. I love that. And I'm really happy for him that he was able to get to a place where he was going to be open about this. And I think that there are probably a lot of people out there who this means a lot to them that he was, you know, so open about all of this. But I don't know. What do you think, Casey? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to even pretend for a second I know what that shame feels like. But what I do know is that shame can destroy someone and make you feel little and make you feel like you're not worthy. So the fact that he's at a place where he knows he's worthy is just so beautiful. And you know what? To be frank, in 2007, I think that would have hurt his career because our society is messed up with the stigma of HIV. So I think that he had to make a really difficult decision to hide part of himself to get what he wanted. And that's absolutely awful that he had to do it. So yeah, but I agree with you. I'm so happy that he's gotten to the place where he is today. So now I want to look back at the past year. And, you know, if we have to point to any kind of silver lining to anything we've been through, I think it's this. We're all talking a lot more about mental health. We're being a lot more open about communicating our needs. And there are a lot more of us who may be exploring therapy. But... This is also brought to light a major issue. Therapy is extremely white, overwhelmingly so. 
And given the amount of trauma we as a nation have been through when it comes to race and identity, it's becoming clear that it's probably beneficial to see a therapist you can really relate to. In the absence of diversity in the therapy field, social media is stepping up to fill the void. Today, we're exploring this topic with BuzzFeed News Senior Culture Editor Estelle Tang. She wrote the piece, These Instagram Accounts Want to Make Therapy Less White. Hi, Estelle. Hi, how are you? Good. I'm so glad you're joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So first, I want to say how much I really enjoyed reading your piece. I think it's a very important topic and a very personal one. You even share some of your own story in this. So you explain that there was this moment when you realized maybe you should be seeing a therapist who understands your background as a child of immigrants, aka a less white therapist. Can you explain what that moment was? Yes. So this is one of those stories that definitely reveals a lot about me and especially what my Google and social media algorithms are like. I'm definitely somebody who is really into following a lot of mental health influences on Instagram. And I was scrolling through my feed one day and I came across this one specific post. Like it was literally a, like a screenshot of a tweet, you know, one of those kinds of posts. And I read it and it was I immediately felt too seen and too perceived. And it happened to be a post on an Instagram account called Brown Girl Therapy. It's run by Sahaj Kohli, who is a therapist in training. And the advice and the content that she basically runs on that account is aimed at children of immigrants. It's mental health advice for children of immigrants. And reading it, I kind of... I felt like something that had been missing and how I thought about my mental health just like clicked into place. I know it's a huge cliche, but I realized I'd been thinking about myself with a huge part of my identity removed and seeing advice geared specifically to someone who was a child of immigrants really just made all the difference in how I was thinking about mental health treatment. You know, I want to bring up some statistics you break down in your piece. 86% of psychologists are white, 5% Asian, 5% Latinx, 4% Black, and 1% were from a different racial background. You point out as a point of comparison, the general population is only 62% white. So yes, that seems like a big concern when it's laid out like that. Do you know what's behind that disparity? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think it's going to be a surprise to anyone that high level education, the kind of education that you need to become, say, a therapist to do a master's is not exactly super accessible or affordable for people of color. And I think that that leads to a kind of dearth of practitioners who are from backgrounds of people who might seek therapy. So I spoke to one woman, Alison Cho, who herself is a therapist in training. And she had an experience with a therapist who was an older white woman who, when Alison explained her background, she's Asian. She also is a bilingual Spanish speaker. The therapist was really kind of surprised and taken aback and made it feel like something strange and of interest rather than being able to take that in a stride and treat her as a person who had her own specific backgrounds and needs. And Alison discontinued working with that therapist. And it's a very, very common experience, I think, with therapists who aren't necessarily of the same background, or they don't even have to be the same background. They just have to understand that your background might not be the same as you. So we were talking about essentially the fact that there aren't enough people, for example, who might be from 
a cultural background that I share or might even speak the right language to be able to communicate with you. It does kind of feed into all kinds of disparities in mental health care. And that's kind of at every level from education to actual practitioners on the ground. You know, you also spoke to many other people for this piece. What kind of other concerns and stories were you hearing from people about issues they had with their white therapists, you know, things they felt like their therapists either couldn't understand or couldn't help them with? Yeah, so it's I spoke to five people who run mental health accounts on Instagram, and I think I would be right in saying that they all explained that their particular mental health accounts, which are all geared to specific racial groups, so Jenny Wang of Asians for Mental Health, Amber D of Black Female Therapists, they all said something to the tune of, there just wasn't a resource like this for me. I think Amber D herself, who is a therapist, was looking for a Black female therapist. She wanted to work with a Black female therapist and she couldn't find one. And she said, if I am a therapist and I can't find a black female therapist, what luck is somebody who doesn't have this training going to have? So she started her account in order to be able to connect black female therapists with clients who wanted that specific background and somebody that they were talking to about the particular issues they were going through. And so, yeah, it is really just one of those things that is way more prevalent than you think. And once you start thinking about it, you realize, oh, it's everywhere. We'll be right back to talk about how Instagram accounts are stepping up to make therapy less white. Fit. We're tired of hearing new year, new you, fat burning secrets, and lose weight fast. The only thing you need to lose is self-doubt. The body you're in deserves respect, love, and support. Support you're not getting from your current sports bra. It's time to experience the only sports bra that actually does its job and outperforms the most popular brands on the market. It's time to feel real support from SheFit. Save $10 today at SheFit.com slash 2022. Hello, I'm Minnie Driver, and on my podcast, Mini Questions, I ask trailblazers across different disciplines the same seven questions. Questions about the inflection points in their life, what they like least about themselves, and what relationship has defined love for them. This season, I'm coming back with new trailblazers like blondie vocalist Debbie Harry, journalist and television host Jeremy Clarkson, editor-in-chief of Instar magazine Laura Brown, and creative juggernaut Goldie. Join me as we continue this exploration on season two of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Hey, Lethal listeners, Tig here. Last season on Lethal Lit, you might remember I came to Hollow Falls on a mission, clearing my Aunt Beth's name and making sure justice was finally served. But I hadn't counted on a rash of new murders tearing apart the town. My mission put myself and my friends in danger. Though it wasn't all bad. I'm gonna be real with you, Tig. I like you. But now, all signs point to a new serial killer in Hollow Falls. If this game is just starting, you better believe I'm gonna win. I'm Tig Torres, and this is Lethal Lit. Catch up on season one of the hit murder mystery podcast, Lethal Lit, a Tig Torres mystery, out now. And then tune in for all new thrills in season two, dropping weekly starting February 9th. Subscribe now to never miss an episode. Listen to Lethal Lit on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. We're talking with Estelle Tang. 
We've really established that, yes, there is a shortage of non-white therapists out there. The heart of your piece is really about how Instagram accounts are stepping up to fill this void. You've mentioned a few already, brown girl therapy being one of them. Can you talk about what kind of content these accounts are putting out there that people are relating with? So I think the posts that I would say I relate to the most, because this is all about me, <laughs> they, they really talk about things like achievement. So for example, I come from an Asian background and I wouldn't say that my parents, for example, were like, you must achieve at all costs. But there certainly is an understanding that when you're a child of immigrants, especially, you know, I can only speak from my own experience, but from an Asian background, that you will achieve, you will do well at school, you'll devote a lot of your attention to academic achievement. And that was really challenging for me. So in the last year, in the pandemic year, I got laid off twice. And obviously that's challenging. It's enough in itself, but I felt like I was a failure on a very specific level because I was somebody who had, you know, studied so hard, worked so hard, and yet I just couldn't make my life look the way that I wanted to. And I realized that there was an expectation and an assumption in there that I was really putting on myself and it had to do a lot with how I was brought up. So I would say that brown girl therapy, for example, talks a lot about these unspoken assumptions and these different values that might be just in the kind of area around you when you're kind of growing up, these assumptions that you take in and really addresses them head on. And so all of the therapists that I spoke to and therapists in training who run these accounts deal with a lot of these different um, assumptions for different folks of different backgrounds. You know, it may seem counterintuitive to be heading to social media to find comfort and peace when it can be an extremely toxic place sometimes. And, you know, Instagram obviously can't fully take the place of actual therapy, but it does seem to be helping people. How are people finding help through these accounts and, and what is their interaction like? Yeah. So as you said, you know, Instagram has been shown study after study to be a super toxic place. You look on there and you're like, well, I'm not having a vacation in the Bahamas. Like what's wrong with my life? And so a lot of the therapists I spoke to who run these accounts really wanted to acknowledge that fact. And a lot of them say specifically, you know, Instagram is not therapy. Therapy work has to happen outside of the social media context. But, you know, social media is just that. It connects people. And that might be somebody who's looking for a therapist. I think Black female therapists, as I mentioned, is specifically created to promote Black female therapists in different areas. You can apply, I think, to be featured on there. So these people running accounts that have content that they've been looking for all along and couldn't find. But a lot of them also admit, yeah, it's really hard to run an Instagram account that caters to, I think Brown Girl Therapy has something like 170,000 followers and she's just one person and she's studying and she's writing a book. And, you know, there is an expectation when you're online and you're public, especially giving mental health advice that you might be available online all the time. But then a lot of the people who run these accounts also say that's been really heartening to see communities grow up within the comments, for example, and the accounts are not just there to connect people who are looking for therapists, but also therapists themselves who are looking for community within the industry that they had not been able to find. And then finally, one thing I really loved that Melody Lee said of inclusive therapists, that's the name of her account is that it's enabled people to come together around not just mental health, but also issues of activism and collective health, because mental health is not just 
therapy and it's not just meditation, these kind of treatment modalities. It's also the context that we live in. It's healthcare, it's politics. And so I really loved that. I thought it was really empowering to see the fact that it was bigger than just kind of reading this one message and hitting that like. Yeah. And, you know, in that vein, it seems like there is a lot more discussion happening around the relationships between race and identity and trauma, just given everything that's happened in the world in this last year. So do you think that with the surge in these therapy accounts, with these discussions that are happening, we'll be able to see more diversity in therapy ultimately? Yeah, it's a huge question. And I think there are obviously so many different elements that will feed into that. I think we were talking about the affordability of training is a huge one. And, you know, there's lots and lots and lots of things that would play into that. And I can't even really imagine how to kind of cure some of those problems. But I do think that being able to diagnose the problem and say, hey, look, there really is a disparity here. There are people who aren't being served by the current systems that we have and the current providers that we have. And then also to be able to address these gaps for people who are already in training. I've seen a few comments from people who said, it's not like you know, only a white person can treat a white person or a Chinese person can treat a Chinese person. And I agree with that. And Alison Cho actually mentioned this concept of cultural humility, where it's like you can learn to become more aware of what position somebody else has as a therapist. You can become more aware as like a person seeking therapy that you're of your difference and your experiences and how they might relate to you. So I do think that there are some ways that hopefully even the sheer understanding of what this problem um, is will be really helpful for people looking for therapy. Well, Estelle, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a great conversation. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for today. Come back and join us tomorrow. And remember, everyone has some imaginary friends and maybe a few of them are celebrities. (laughs) Be sure to subscribe to BuzzFeed Daily on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you go for your sound stories. And please take the time to leave us a rating and a review. It helps us figure out what you like about the show versus what you love about the show. And remember to come back for more of what you love about BuzzFeed, coming to you daily. Socks are the number one most requested item in homeless shelters. Underwear is the second, shirts are third. At Bombas, socks were first. Made with comfortable details for everyday wearing. Then underwear and shirts too all designed to perfectly fit. At Bombas, every item you purchase means you're donating an essential clothing item to someone in need. One comfortable clothing item for you, one donated to someone in need. Bombas, comfort for all. Get 20% off your purchase at bombas.com slash comfy. Raffi is the voice of some of the happiest songs of our generation. Baby Beluga. So who is the man behind Baby Beluga? Every human being wants to feel respected. When we start with young children, all good things can grow from there. I'm Chris Garcia, comedian, new dad, and host of Finding Raffi, a new podcast from iHeartRadio and Fatherly. Listen every Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Colleen Witt. Join me, the host of Eating While Broke podcast, while I eat a meal created by self-made entrepreneurs, influencers, and celebrities over a meal they once ate when they were broke. Today, I have the lovely AJ Crimson, the official princess of Compton, Asia. Kidding, and Asia. This is the professor. We're here on Eating While Broke, and today I'm going to break down my meal that got me through a time when I was broke. 
Listen to Eating While Broke on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.